Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we are doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast back on the 10th of September in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Come on in. Come on in out of the brisk, cool night air. Is it brisk and cool where you are? It is in St. Louis. At least it is tonight. was yesterday, too. We were supposed to get, like, record-breaking rain it's all weekend. And I think it rained for maybe four or five hours Friday night, Saturday morning, and that was it. And now we have fall-like weather, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Chester is beside himself back there. He has uh, got an autumn wreath hanging on his wall. <laughs> you like the autumn. I do, I do too, Justin. I do too. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Boomer Boulevard. This is Bob Bro, and I welcome you. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers, but everybody's welcome. Have a good lineup tonight. We're going to do an episode of The Whistler. And then we're going to do an episode of Dragnet. We're going to follow that up with uh, Father Knows Best. And then finally with Gunsmoke. So we have a great lineup tonight, four shows. So we're kind of tight on time. So we're going to get started in just a minute. Listening to that theme music to lead into this show, I'll give you two guesses what the first show is. 
you got it on the first one. The Whistler. <laughs> we haven't played too many Whistlers, and they were they were really fun shows. Uh, the Whistler played mostly on the West Coast. It was uh, sponsored by Signal Oil Company, which I remember as Signal Oil Company from when I was a kid. I remember Signal Gas Stations. We'll talk a little bit about that on the other side. But The Whistler was a great show. It was like an anthology show, a mystery. A lot of times it had to do with coincidence and with, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for when something is, uh, I'll, I'll think of it. Uh, sort of like the Twilight Zone, uh, only it, it didn't have the science fiction so much. But really great little plot twists and, and irony. That's the word I was looking for. A lot of, uh, a lot of irony in the episodes of The Whistler. It was a great fun show. The Whistler was, of course, just a, this mysterious fellow that would introduce the show. The theme song of The Whistler was, uh, was uh, created by Wilbur Hatch, who did so many uh, uh, CBS shows, uh, created the music for them. This one, I believe, features Helen Klebe as, I think it's Peggy, which is the older kind of nasty sister. The name of this episode is The Three Sisters. It first was broadcast back in January 46 on the 28th, 28th of January 1946. And, no, excuse me, it's not called, it's called The Strange Sisters. And that's a very, <laughs> very apt title because it's very descriptive of what this story is about. There's only women in this, in this story. There's only three of them, and they all are very, three very strange sisters. But Whistler would never give credit to the actors at the end of the show. I don't know why. But I, the only voice I think I recognize in here is Helen Klebe. And, of course, you remember her from being one of the Baldwin sisters on the Waltons. And she was in so many other great CBS shows. A lot of dragnets, a lot of gun smokes. Uh, Helen Klebe. I believe it's her, but don't hold me to it. All right, pretty good story. So let's sit back, relax, and enjoy The Whistler and the tale of the strange sisters. That whistle is your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now, the Whistler's strange story. The Strange Sisters. The three Randall girls were as different from each other as day and night. Even the people of Newton who had watched them grow up found it hard to accept the fact that they were sisters. Pamela, the eldest, was forceful and overbearing, heavy-set and unattractive. Kathy, the youngest, was a weakling. Life was a little too complicated for her, and she found the easiest solution was to let Pamela face it, to bring her problems to Pamela. 
to listen meekly to Pamela's instructions and then to quietly obey. Yes, Pamela and Kathy were two extremes. And Sally, the third sister, was in the middle, both in age and temperament. The combination of Pamela's strength and Kathy's frailty had produced in Sally a kind of radiance that had made life easy for her, that had made her sure of success where her sisters had failed. And the more she succeeded, the harder it became for Pamela and Kathy to face it. Until one morning, Mrs. Stokes, the housekeeper, called Kathy for breakfast. There was no answer. Miss Kathy, your breakfast is on the table. That girl takes a team of horses to get her out of bed. Miss Kathy! Your breakfast is ready, young lady, and I ain't going to keep it warm for you another moment. Miss Kathy, answer me. I know you're... Good Lord. Locked. And now, my key. Here. Miss Kathy, what are you... <coughs> Gas. The heater... Oh, where's the handle? <coughs> there. Miss Pamela! Miss Pamela, come up quick! Oh, the window. <coughs> there. Miss Pam! What's the matter? What's the matter, Mrs. It, Stokes? It's Kathy. She's... Oh, Miss Pamela. Yes. Uh, Miss Kathy? Miss Kathy? Here, here, like me. Yes. Kathy. Kathy, dear. Yes. Let me see. Her pulse... Oh, she's alive. Call Dr. Johnson quickly. Well, do you think she's... Don't stand there like an idiot. Call the doctor. Yes, Miss Pamela. Right away. Hello, Pamela. Well, it's nice of you to leave your work, Sally. That's a peculiar remark to make. I think it's apropos of the moment. I don't. As usual, I suppose we disagree. Oh, where is she? In there with Dr. Johnson. Will she be all right? I don't know yet. Well, I'm going in and... Wait a minute. You're not going in there. You can't stop me, Pamela. I've got a right to know. And since you didn't choose to tell me over the phone, I'll find out for myself. I said wait. Kathy is my sister too, Pamela. She doesn't belong to you. You've had her under your thumb for so long, the poor girl can't even think for herself. All right, go on in if you want to kill her. What do you mean by that? I've managed to convince Dr. Johnson it was an accident. It was an accident. She left the gas heater on and You've then... never been very clever, Sally. Kathy tried to kill herself. You're wrong. You're making it up. She didn't have a reason. I admit it wasn't a very good reason. But it's been used a thousand times. Go on. It's a man, Sally. And a rather shabby specimen at that. She was in love? Yes. How long has it been going on? Six months or more. You're sure? Of course I'm sure. Who is it, Pamela? Your fiancé. Henry? Why? Oh, you're wrong. You must be wrong. He never gave her any reason. He's, he's hardly even spoken to her. You asked me and I told you. Pamela, where did Kathy get the idea that Henry French was in love with her? Tell me, Pamela. Where did it come from? I don't know. You stepped into that part of her life, too, didn't you? Answer me. Oh, come now, Sally. Don't distort that pretty finishing school face of yours. It's your biggest asset, you know. It's gotten you everything you ever wanted. There's no end to what it can do. How can you be so contemptible? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe you are clever. Insinuating your way into father's confidence. Bowing and scraping. Playing the faithful daughter when he was ill. That's why father left everything to you when he died. $50,000 and two sisters to provide for, if and when you felt like it. We're your favorite charity, aren't we? 
That's part of the act, too. Lady Bountiful. I've heard all I want to hear, Pamela. Very well. Perhaps you'd better go. I'm going to see Kathy whether you like it or not. You see, I was wrong. I'm admitting it. Oh? I was wrong in leaving you and Kathy under the same roof. I just hope it isn't too late to do anything about it. Perhaps you're forgetting it's my roof, too. As long as I choose to let you stay here, Pamela. Hmm. It's funny, isn't it, Pamela? You try to be fair. You try to do the right thing, and it all blows up in your face. Well, Dr. Johnson? I think she's going to be all right. May I see her, Doctor? Uh, she asked for Pamela. Oh, well, I'm sure if she knows I'm here. Uh, perhaps you'd better wait, Sally. She was rather specific. What do you mean, specific? She doesn't want to see you, Sally. Oh. I'll go in, Doctor. Are you going to wait, Sally? No. I'll go. I left her prescription on the dresser, Pamela. Three drops and half a glass of water every four hours. Uh, may I drop you off somewhere, Sally? Oh, thank you, Doctor. Kathy? Kathy, are you all right? No. No, I'm not all right. I'll never be all right anymore. You mustn't feel that way, dear. I made a mess of this, too. I never do things right, do I, Pam? What will... What will Henry think of me now? They only know what I told them, Kathy. They think it was an accident. Don't worry about Henry, dear. You must have been wrong, Pam. He doesn't love me. He couldn't. He would have told me. He wouldn't have just gone off with Sally. Well, maybe you'll believe me now, Kathy. She's capable of anything. She owns it all now. The house, the money, and now Henry French. Don't you see, Kathy? He was the only thing she didn't have. He was yours. And she made up her mind she wanted him, too. He never told me. Of course me. he didn't, Sally. Never gave him a chance. I hate her. It's awful, Pam, but I can't help it. I hate her. So do I. What can we do? Well, well maybe you'd better rest a while now. No, no. Now tell me, Pam. What are we going to do? There's a way. Yes, there is a way. What? Kathy. Kathy, we're going to kill her. Jealousy can do strange things to a mind like yours, can't it? And it's a peculiar mind, filled to the bursting point with frustrated black hatred for your sister Sally, accumulated during the long years the three of you spent under the same roof with your father. She always had everything, didn't she? You and Kathy had to take what was left and like it. Yes, Pamela, that jealous hatred has brought you to the point where you'll stop at nothing. Lying, cheating, twisting the truth in such a way 
that your poor, gullible sister Kathy believes the very existence of Sally condemns her to begging for crumbs at Sally's table when the bread is rightfully hers. And you've thought of everything, haven't you, Pamela? You're confident that Kathy is prepared for the talk with Sally that's bound to come sooner or later. But, Kathy, I know I'm right about Pamela. Why must you always talk about Pamela? Pamela did this if it wasn't for Pamela. Oh, stop it, will you? I tell you, Pamela's the only one in the world I can turn to. Please, Kathy, please believe me, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You are, dear. She's filled your mind with all sorts of hateful lies about me and Henry. Why do you keep throwing that in my face? Henry, Henry, Henry! He's yours now, isn't he? You've got him. You were smart. Just like she said. All right, take him. Marry him, I don't care. Doesn't make any difference now. Kathy, apparently there's nothing I can do or say that will make any difference in the way you feel. I promised Father I'd take care of you. Well, I'm leaving you the house and all the furniture. And I'm making arrangements for a trust fund that'll provide for you both. That's charitable of you. Under the circumstances, I think it is. I'll expect you and Pamela to be civil to Henry until we leave. Is that clear? Is he coming here? Yes. To live? Yes, for a week or so. I don't understand. It's very simple. We're going to be married tonight. Yes, Pamela. Kathy was prepared, wasn't she? Sally was right. Nothing she could do or say would make any difference. Because Kathy is yours, isn't she? For too many years, she's depended on you for guidance, looked to you for advice, regarded everything you said as truth and everything else false. Yes, jealousy is a strange thing, Pamela. It's been there, deep inside you, for as long as you can remember. And it was convenient for you to find a cause for it. Sally and your father, the legacy, the house, the money... But that's gone now, isn't it, Pamela? Sally's been pretty fair about it. She and Henry are married now, and you have the house and your share of the money. That's what's strange about jealousy. The cause is gone, but it's still there, stronger than ever. And with it, your plan for murder. Did you get the key to their room for Mrs. Stokes? Yes. Here it is. She doesn't know you have it. No, she's gone to the store. I took it off the hook. Give it to me. What are you going to do? Just look around a little. Why? Henry's things are up there. He brought them in last night before they left. Well, I'm just curious, Kathy. Just curious. All right, Kathy, you can put the key back now. Did you find anything? Yes, several things. What? Kathy, I'll do the shopping tomorrow. Shopping? Pam, you never do... I'll tell you later. It seems Mr. French is a vicious man, Kathy. Perhaps you're just as well rid of him. Vicious? Of course. He must be, dear. Otherwise, why would he keep a loaded revolver in the upper drawer of his dresser? (laughs) 
Well, Miss Pamela, what are you doing around here? Why, you ain't been in the store for six months now. Oh, I thought the walk might do me good. Well, what'll it be? A small rolled roast, please. About three pounds, perhaps. You got just the thing for you here. You ain't looking too well, if you don't mind my saying so. Something wrong? No, nothing. Oh. Yeah. Will this do? Yes, that'll be fine. It's kind of small. Oh, it'll do, Mr. Watkins. You see, Kathy and I haven't been too well lately. Uh, I, I thought so. Now, come on, what's up? I... Oh, I know I shouldn't say anything, but I've got to talk to someone, Mr. Watkins. Oh, gosh, is it that bad? I don't know. It's Sally and that husband of hers. You don't say. They've been quarreling dreadfully. It's been going on all morning, and I just had to get away from it somehow. It was only married night before last. You you won't say anything, will you, Mr. Watkins? Promise me. Sure, sure. Well, it's about the estate. Sally told him she was going to deed part of it to Kathy and me, and he flew into the most dreadful fit of temper. I could hardly believe my eyes. Sugar, Miss Pamela. Thank you, Mr. Kennedy. I'm uh, I'm sure sorry about that. You you won't say anything, will you? Me? Oh, no, no. Ain't there anything you can do? Let's see now. You wanted a shampoo and a finger wave, Miss Pamela. Yes. Gosh, you know, I can hardly get my mind on my work after what you told me. Well, you, you won't say anything, will you? Oh, of course not, Miss Pamela. Not a word. You're very efficient, aren't you, Pamela? The town of Newton is like a smooth pond. All you have to do is cast a few pebbles here and there, and the ripples spread over the whole surface, clear to the edges. There's another step now, a very important one. Sally is hostile and suspicious, and you're going to need her confidence. Who is it? Pamela. Well, Pamela, may I come in? Must you? Please don't make it difficult for me, Sally. I don't understand. I have something to tell you. I'd like to come in and sit down if you don't mind. All right, Pamela. Now? Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking, Sally, and and I haven't slept much. Not since you told us about the house and, and the money. Yes, it was so unexpected, I... Well, you see, it threw me a little off balance. What are you trying to say? You know me so well, Sally. The past few years have been hard, and I know I've been unreasonable and difficult. Pamela, you're trying to say you're sorry, aren't you? Oh, I'm so clumsy at this sort of thing. Oh, I do so want to have you and Henry forgive me. Oh, my dear. I really believe you mean it. I do, Sally, I do mean it. And I'm going to try to make Kathy understand, too. You're right, Sally. I've been such a terrible influence on the poor thing. Pam, darling, I'm so happy that it's working out. Oh, Sally, I... Come on, now. Let's forget all about it. I'm sure Henry will understand. It's odd, isn't it? I had the feeling underneath that somehow it would work out. I just knew it, Pam. Thank you, Sally. Thank you. Now, you go on downstairs and tell Kathy. I've got to finish the packing. Packing? Well, but but you're not leaving until the end of the week. Henry has to make a business trip to New York. Some things he has to settle up before we leave. When's he going? Tonight. He's leaving at nine. 
Oh, that reminds me. I must call the cab. He said to be sure to have it here for him promptly at nine. Now, you run down and tell Kathy it's all cleared up, will you? Oh, of course, Sally. Of course. That's what I get for avoiding them. How could I have been so stupid? Oh, it's all right, Pam. Henry will be back. Oh, don't be ridiculous. He's leaving for New York tonight, and they're taking the steamer from there in four days. No, Kathy. He's not coming back. He'll send for her, and she'll meet him there. But isn't there some way? There's only one way. It's got to happen tonight. Oh, oh I'm scared. Pam, maybe... Oh, stop gibbering, Kathy. The town is ready for it, and it's going to happen. Henry French is going to shoot his wife in a fit of temper and try to leave the country. Pam, Pam, the gun. How are we going to get the gun? You see, we can't do it. We can't do it without the gun. And, and, it, and it's in his dresser, and, and she's up I there. I said stop gibbering. I've got to think. Turn on the light. It's getting dark in here. Yes, Pam. There. Light. Yes. The light. That's it. The light. What is it, Pam? The basement. Kathy, the fuse box is in the basement, in the furnace room. The fuse box. You'll get here about six. I'll go down in the basement and unscrew a fuse. The lights will go out. You know, Henry, he'll trot down to the basement to fix it. What about Sally? I'll wait till she's downstairs. You'll be on the second floor in a room at the end of the corridor. And then, when he leaves, you can go into the room and get the gun. You can see it pretty clearly now, can't you, Pamela? The People versus Henry French, the charge murder. It's easy to think there in the basement as you wait in a dark corner after you unscrew the fuse. And listen to the confusion upstairs as they stumble around in the dark. Then, as an afterthought, you find an old blown-out fuse on the shelf and screw it into place. Just in case Henry might wonder how a perfectly good one could come unscrewed by itself. Then, when it's over, you return secretly to your room at the end of the second-floor corridor. Did you get it? Yes, here it is. I wore my gloves, Pam, just as you told me. All right, now listen. We haven't much time. He's down there now, waiting for the taxi. Have you got your watch on? Yes. Now, let's see. Oh, luminous dial, that's good. Now, listen carefully. The taxi is calling promptly at 9 o'clock. Understand, it's going to happen shortly after he leaves. About 5 past 9. Who's going to do it? You are. Oh, Pam. You've got to. I'll have to be upstairs. You'll be in the basement. Henry will leave in the taxi at 9, and I'll get Sally up on the second floor on some pretext. At five past nine, I'll scream that you've fallen down the basement stairs. She'll run down. Uh, yeah. Yes, Pam. I understand. Now remember, not until after nine o'clock. We've got to be sure Henry is gone. All right, Pam. I'll look at my watch. I promise. Good. Now you'd better get down here. It would be rude of me not to be there to say goodbye to him. <laughs> So the time has come, hasn't it, Pamela? Forty years of pent-up hatred is about to find release at last. 
For the first time in your life, you're actually cordial to Henry as you make small talk with him in the entrance hallway. And you feel a glow of satisfaction as you watch him carry his bags to the waiting taxi. Then, just as you begin to wonder why Sally isn't there to see him off, you hear a foot on the stair and your heart stops. Sally. What's the matter? Why, the... The suitcase. You're in traveling clothes. Well, what's the matter with that? You're going to... Oh, that's it. I guess I'm not used to having you concerned about me, Pam. As a matter of fact, we decided just five minutes ago. I convinced Henry that walking out on his wife after four days of marriage was a pretty dirty trick. Yes, dear, I'm coming. Well, goodbye, Pamela. I'll wire you if we decide not to come back. Sally, you... You can't. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing, Sally. You watch unbelieving as she walks down the steps to the taxi cab. It failed, didn't it? Just like everything else you ever tried. Sally succeeded and you failed. There's a lump in your throat. You're all choked up with disappointment and bitter, corrosive hatred. Then suddenly, you realize there is another way. You've got to get to Kathy and tell her. You glance at the clock, 8.45. It's still safe. Then over to the basement door. Kathy! Kathy! didn't work out, Pamela. You're a failure even in death. And without you, Kathy is lost. She's helpless now, cringing before the sharp questions the officers throw at her, trying futilely to lie her way out of a hopeless trap. And Sally stands there, unbelieving, as the hatred, the jealousies come to the surface for all the world to see. More questions, more stumbling answers, then still more and more, until finally... Take her away, Joe. Well, there you are, Mrs. French. I... I can't believe it. It's so fantastic. Yeah, it is at that. They knew Mr. French was leaving at nine. Planned to kill you with his gun. In the dresser drawer. That's where he kept it. Pamela was smart, Mrs. French. But she forgot one thing. The clock on the wall read 8.45... So she figured it was safe to open the basement door where Kathy was waiting to kill you. She forgot it was an electric clock. When she pulled the fuse down there and cut out the current, the clock lost 18 minutes. Next Monday at 9 o'clock, The Whistler will bring you another strange tale. 
The Whistler is broadcast for your entertainment by the marketers of Signal Gasoline and Motor Oil and fine quality automotive accessories. And by your neighborhood Signal dealer. This program, produced by George W. Allen, based on a story by Bernard Girard and Zane Mann, music by Wilbur Hatch, is transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From January 28th, 1946, that was The Whistler, and the name of that episode was The Strange Sisters. We're going to have more episodes of The Whistler. I just came across a treasure trove of Whistler episodes in very good sound, and I spent a few bucks on them, and I love The Whistler, so we'll play some more of those in the weeks ahead. Uh, Some great stories. And they were presented by the Signal Oil Company. Like I said, they were mostly heard on the West Coast because that's where Signal Oil was. And at the time, uh, CBS would do some West Coast programming and some East Coast programming. And The Whistler was pretty much a West Coast show. There was a year or so where it played nationwide. So you may not remember the Signal Oil Company. I do. I remember them um, from when I was a kid. And their logo was an old-fashioned traffic signal, the kind that, uh, you know, the one ran north and south, say, the main signal box. But out of the side, uh, a flag would come out, and it would either say, go or stop. And on the main box, there was a red light and a green light. And a bell would ding. And when the bell would ding, all of a sudden, the one flag would go down, and there would be just a brief hesitation, and the other flag would come up. Do you remember those? Do you know what I'm talking about? They used to have those in downtown Los Angeles. I don't remember them in my hometown of Long Beach, but I do remember them in Los Angeles. Well, things change. Like, for instance, in this story tonight, fuse boxes. Remember fuse boxes? I'm sure you do, because those aren't that old. But before we had breaker switches, you used to have to screw in little fuses. And that always scared the bejabbers out of me because I never liked to deal with electricity anyway. But you'd go down and you could see if the fuse was broken or not because there was a little strip of of tin across the front of the fuse. And if that was broken, you knew that the fuse had popped and it wasn't good anymore. You remember those? And you'd literally unscrew it. And then you take a new fuse, and everybody used to keep a box of fuses right there under the fuse box, and you'd screw in another one. And a lot of times, if there was some kind of a short or something, that would immediately pop. That's when you had to call the electrician. Well, those are memories, folks. Those are memories. We'll have more of The Whistler coming up in the weeks ahead. Get tuned to KRLD, AM and FM Dallas, 1080 Complete Big Time Radio, the 50,000-watt voice of Texas. Well, we're going to give you a little bonus show this week. Four for the price of three. We have an episode of Dragnet about a couple of safe crackers entitled The Big Safe. This was originally broadcast on NBC back on the 1st of May, 
in 1952. The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. For more than two months, a wave of safe burglaries has been sweeping your city. Apparently, it's the work of professionals. Jobs are well-planned, well-executed. There's no lead to the whereabouts of the suspects. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Sunday, June 8th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary division. Safe detail. My partner's Bill Lockwood. The boss is Captain Wisdom. My name's Friday. I was on the way back to the office, and it was 8.36 a.m. when I got to room 45, burglary division. Joe? Oh, hi, Smith. There's a note in the book for us from the captain about your partner, Lockwood. Yeah, what's that? Forgot to make that sick report on him yesterday. Did you call him? How's his leg? Well, I talked to him on the phone last night. Pretty bad ankle sprain. Doctor figures he'll be out for a couple of weeks anyway. Who's the fellow you got there? Suspect Jones and McCready picked up on stakeout, drugstore, 3rd and Ventura. What do you got on him? McCready says they picked him up about quarter to five this morning. Yeah. He and Jones were staked out inside the drugstore. Saw this fellow drive up in the car, get out and try the front door of the place. Uh-huh. And he went around and back the place, tried the back door, and he came around in front again, tried to jimmy the door. Finally gave up, got in his car, and started to drive off. Jones and McCready followed him, picked him up, and brought him in. Where's Jones and McCready now, do you know? I told him to go ahead home. No reason for him to hang around. We'd carry the thing from here. What have you done so far? Did you check him through r yet? Call Frank Cunningham. He's doing it now. What's his name? According to his identification, it's Charles W. Boyd in the address of 239 West 92nd Street. That's what he tells us anyway. Mm-hmm. Is that your name, fella? Yeah, that's my name. Saw my identification. No reason for me to lie. You can check me out. All right. Hold your hand up there. We'll get these cuffs off you. Yeah, sure. All right, there you are. Yeah, thanks. Sure tired sitting here handcuffed, sitting in one place. Frank, you want to tell Gaffney we'll be down in the interrogation room? When R&I calls back, tell him to transfer it in there, would you? Yeah, okay, I'll meet you there. All right, thanks. All right, boy, let's go. I can talk to you down the hall. Yeah, let's get this thing over with. I don't feel good. I want to get out of here. What are you shaking for? There's nothing to get nervous about. Are you sick? Yeah, I haven't been feeling good at all the last couple of days. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? I was smoked. Hey, say, would you happen to have a cigarette, please? Yeah. Here you are. Thanks. There's a light for you. Yeah. I got it. Thanks. All right. Turn around a minute, will you? Let me look at your eyes. Huh? Turn around. All right, let's go. It's okay, Joe. I told Gaffney he'll put through the call tomorrow night. Oh, that's fine. You sure this won't take long? I'd like to get out of here and get home. I've been sick for a week. I ought to be in bed right now. We'll make it as fast as we can. All right, in here. Have a chair, Boyd. Yeah. All right, mister. You say you're not feeling well. You're tired. You want to go home. So are we. We've been working all night. Now, how about getting the bottom of this thing? Well, sure, I'm all for it. Try to explain to the guys who picked me up. I don't know what it's all about. Ask me anything you want. 
Now, let's start it here, Boyd. What were you doing out there hanging around that drugstore at quarter to five this morning? It's the same thing I told the other officers. I was sick. I wanted to get something for my nerves. Jumpy as a cat. I couldn't sleep. Well, the drugstore was closed. That was pretty obvious, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was. I just drove up there, tried the door, and I saw the joint was closed, so I left. That's all there is to it. Just what I told the other officers. No, that's not true, Boyd, and you know it isn't. You hung around the store for more than ten minutes. You tried the front door... Then you waited a couple of minutes, you went around to the back. You tried to get in back there, you couldn't make it, so you came around front again. You tried to jimmy the front door, didn't you? No, no, that's not it. You got it all wrong. How about this, boy? This your crowbar? Yeah, what about it? Just a car tool used to fix flat tires. Carry it around all the time in the car. You carry it on you? No, not all the time. I just happened to have it, that's all. Now, look, boy, that's not going to get it. The officers that picked you up saw you using this bar on the door of that drugstore. I thought you were willing to get on to facts. You were going to square with us. How about it? Sure, sure, I'll square with you. I wanted to get over as much as you do. Just tell me what you want to know. All we want is the truth. This address in your ID, the one you gave us, is that your true address? You're living there now? Yeah, that's right. Check it out if you want. I'm not lying. No reason to lie. We think there is. This address of yours is just about ten miles away from where you were picked up. Now you tell us how much sense it makes driving ten miles to a drugstore at 4.30 in the morning. Well, I had to. I was sick. It was the only place open. You're lying and you know it, mister. You had to pass at least two all-night drugstores on the way. Why couldn't you stop at one of those? I didn't see any stores open. I was sick. I just kept driving until I spotted a place I thought was open. Looked to me like it was open. A lot of lights in the window inside the store, too. I didn't know it was closed, so I tried the door. You usually try doors with a crowbar, boy? Oh, look, look, what are you getting at? You, you think I was trying to break in that place? Yeah, that's what we think. Well, what for? What do I want to break in there? I, I wanted to get something for my nerves, that's all. I wanted to find a drugstore. Why should I break open a place and just get a bottle of medicine? Huh? We don't think you were looking for medicine, Boyd. Well, then what was it? Well, what do you figure? This is what we figure, mister. You were going in that store to burglarize the safe. The area is the same, the time element's right, so is the type of business. The M.O. matches right down the line. I don't know what you're talking about. Six safe jobs in the last two months. The same time element, the same general area. Drugstores, liquor stores, and markets. What about it? I don't know what you're talking about. It's the truth. I'm not a burglar. You got me wrong. I never touched a safe in my life. How many times you've been arrested, mister? Huh? How many times you've been arrested? Well, a couple of times I've been picked up. Nothing serious, though, so help me. It's the truth. I never touched a safe in my whole life. It's not going to do much good lying to us, boy. We'll get everything we need from records. Well, i got a record. I ain't denying that, but I'm no burglar. Then what were you doing at quarter of five this morning trying to get in that drugstore if you're not a burglar? I tried to explain to you. I wasn't trying to break in. I needed some medicine, something for my nerves. I thought the place was open. I'm a sick man. I swear on a Bible officer. That's just the way it was. I get it. Yeah, Friday joint. Oh, yeah, kind of. Charles Boyd, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm, that's him. What do you got? Uh-huh. All the same. I see. Give me the last two arrests. No, the last two arrests again. Yeah. May 9th, May 22nd. All right, Cunningham. Yeah, thanks very much. Frank, you got that folder there, those crime reports? Yeah, here you are. What do you have to say? Boyd was in custody May 9th, May 22nd. What was he in on? Narcotics. He's a user. Long record. It's all the same, though. Never been picked up for anything but narcotics. Just about rules him out, huh? Night and the 22nd. If he was in jail, he couldn't have had anything to do with those last two judges. Yeah, it's about the size of it. You guys straight now, huh? I told you. You thought I was lying, didn't you? I'm no burglar. You know what my record is. I never touched a safe in my life. Just checking it out, Boyd. Sometimes it happens this way. Sure. No hard feelings. Take off now and go home. I'm not feeling well at all. I guess it's okay. No, you just sit still, Boyd. You're not going yet. What do you mean? Red tab on your card down at the record bureau. Your last arrest, May 22nd, violation of State Narcotics Act. 
You went out on a $1,500 bail? Yeah, that's right. It was all legal. I paid for it. Why didn't you show up for your preliminary hearing? We got a bench warrant for your arrest. Oh, no, they wouldn't do that to me, would they? I was sick in bed. I couldn't make it to court. You just look at me. You can tell, can't you? I ought to be in bed. Yeah, you don't look good at all. Of course I don't. I'm a sick man, really sick. I ought to be in a hospital. Well, maybe that's where they'll send you. We continued questioning the suspect, Charles Boyd, who finally admitted that he'd gone to the drugstore early that morning for the purpose of burglarizing a place to obtain narcotics. He told us it was his first attempt at burglary, and further interrogation proved beyond a doubt he had nothing to do with the current wave of safe burglaries. He was booked on the bench warrant, and narcotics detail was notified of his arrest. For all practical purposes, we were right back where we'd started from two months before when the campaign of safe jobs first started. Boyd was just another in a long line of possible suspects who had to be tracked down and checked out. In the final analysis, they meant nothing to the case, but tracking them down and checking them out meant long hours of legwork, days, even weeks, and then more hours spent interrogating them. Boyd typified the possible suspect. He added nothing, but he couldn't be ignored. In the weeks that followed, stakeouts continued in the general area where the safe burglaries had been operating. No further leads. The investigation went on. On June 17th, Frank Smith and I drove out to the San Fernando Valley to check a lead on a possible suspect we'd gotten from one of our informants. His information was that the possible suspect, an ex-convict by the name of Mark Chandler, who'd served time for burglary, had apparently come into some money recently. Through the parole office, we located Chandler on a chicken ranch just outside of Van Nuys. Yeah, I've been out here almost three months now. Nice life. Pretty hard work, though. Got a few routine questions for you, Mark. Like we told you, we're from burglary detail. Uh, I guess you know why we're out here. Yeah, I think I get the idea. I admit there was a time when you wouldn't be very welcome, but right now it's different. Anything I can do to help, it's all right, fellas. We're going to lay it right on the table for you, Mark. You own this place, do you? Yeah, that's right. Me and my brother. Where'd the money come from? My brother. He set the whole thing up. You say you and your brother. Whose money bought the place, Mark? Well, my brother made the down payment. You can check on it. The whole deal went through escrow right down here at the local bank. What's the deal, anyway? Didn't you check with my parole officer? Yeah, we checked with Galloway. He told us you were still on active parole. You were running a chicken ranch. Didn't say it was for your brother, though. Well, I thought I filled him in on it. I didn't have enough cash to swing the deal. My brother put up most of the dough. I only had 800 bucks. Uh -huh. That's your car back there in the driveway, Mark? No, that's my brother's. Nice one, huh? Yeah. I got permission from the parole officer to drive. Say, would you mind walking back with me to the Brutus Shack? I got a new batch of Rhode Islands in this morning. Day-old chicks. Got to be sure the heat's right. Yeah, all right. There's a lot of work around a place like this. I, I just built those pens there. Uh-huh. They're nice. Good-looking flock of chicks there, wouldn't you say? Four weeks old. Uh, those are barred rocks. You notice how they're starting to feather out already, getting nice and heavy? Make wonderful fryers, you know. Oh, that's all? Oh, yeah. Uh, just a minute. Hey, will you look at that mash rack? They like fiends. I just filled that thing an hour ago. That's where the money goes. You know that mash goes for better than five bucks a sack? Uh, look, we don't want to take too much of your time, Chandler. We can see you're busy. We've got a couple of dates we'd like to check with you, where you were, what you did. Oh, sure, fellas. Uh, just let me check the temperature in the brooder house here. It won't take a minute. Hey, uh, come on in. All right. Hey, pretty cute when they're small, huh? Uh, let me see here. Just look at that, huh, Joe? Piled all over each other. Must be more than a thousand of them. Yeah, at least. Uh, yeah, just right. Eighty-nine. Got to watch them pretty close the first week. Fell up the road, lost a big batch last week. Heating element in the brooder went out overnight. Oh, yeah, got to shove that door hard. Sticks a little. Yeah, I'll get it. 
Okay, where else was it, officers? Glad to help you any way I can. Those dates we want to check, Mark. It was almost a month ago, the week ending May 7th. Yeah. Can you account for your time on that weekend, where you were, what you did? The 7th? Yeah, let's see. Yeah, I was here. Any way of proving that? Yeah, I think so. I started here the 23rd of April. Been here every night since. Anyone we can check with on that? Well, my brother and his wife. They were here, they can tell you. Neighbors, too. They come over for cards on the weekends. Come to think of it, I remember my parole officer was out to see me one of those weekends. I'm pretty sure of it. You can check with him. All right, Mark. Thanks. Hey, what's the pitch anyway, Sergeant? Uh, safe jobs around town, is that it? That's it. You heard anything, Mark? Any rumbles at all? No, sorry. This job keeps me pretty close to home. I don't get around at all. Maybe two, three nights a month. That's the only time I get out. That's all we're asking about. Before we left the suspect, Mark Chandler, we called his parole officer, and he substantiated the fact that he visited with Chandler on the night of May 7th, the date of one of the safe burglaries. We checked with his brother, his sister-in-law, and the neighbors, and all of them fully corroborated his story. Before we left, we were satisfied that Chandler had nothing to do with the safe burglaries. It was just another of the more than half a hundred possibles that we'd checked out in the course of the investigation. On June 22nd, we got a lead on still another one. It came from the proprietor of a fix-it shop on West Pico Boulevard near Normandy. We drove out to interview him. He gave his name as Harold Van Owen. Yeah, just a minute, officers. Be with you in a minute, all right? Yeah, okay. Have to get these keys made. The lady will be back soon. Says she needs them. What time you got, Frank? 10 to 12. Getting hungry? Well, I didn't have much breakfast. How about dropping by Felipe's, all right? So it's me. I could use a good French dip sandwich. Haven't been down there for a while. Yeah. All right, officer. Sorry to keep you waiting. I had to get the keys done. I promised the woman. That's all right, Mr. Van Owen. Well, what was it you wanted to see us about? Well, I don't know, to tell the truth. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing at all. I just don't know. Figured I ought to let somebody know about it, huh? Yes, sir. The young fellow was in here the day before yesterday. Said his name was Ralph McKinley. Told me he lived around the neighborhood, but I don't think I ever saw him before. He didn't act right to me. Mm-hmm. Said he's an inventor. I doubt it, though. He just didn't look the part to me. The young fellow, you know, dresses pretty flashy. Never met an inventor that looked like that before. Well, what do you want with you, sir? He wanted me to make up a piece of machinery for him. He said it was a special part of a new gadget he was working on. He brought in his own drawing of the thing. I got it down here someplace. Well, what did the young fellow look like? Would you remember that? Oh, typical pool room cowboy, I guess. About 29, 30 years old. Thin side, tall. Got a lot of gray hair for a young fella. Hair was almost gray. There's the drawing. This is what he wants me to make up for him. Hmm. What do you think it's supposed to be? Miss McKinley said it was part of a new hydraulic press he's working on. I got a few doubts about that. How do you mean? Oh, I've been tinkering around in this business long enough to know what goes into a hydraulic press. Can't see where this thing fits in at all. Well, what's your idea on it? I think it's a pull. Only one job there any good for. Yeah. Breaking into a safe. Before we left the fix-it shop, Van Owen gave us a complete description of Ralph McKinley, the man who'd ordered the gadget made for him. We showed him several mug shots of possible suspects, but he was unable to make any identification. Van Owen told us that McKinley said he'd call back in about three or four days to pick it up. Except for the man's chance remark that he lived in the neighborhood, Van Owen had no idea as to his whereabouts. 12.10 p.m. We drove back to the office and made arrangements for an immediate stakeout at the fix-it shop. Then we checked the name and description of Ralph McKinley through R&I and through the stats office. It got us nothing. As far as we could find out, he had no previous criminal record. The end of the week came and went. 
the man known as McKinley failed to show up at Van Owen's fix-it shop to pick up the article that he'd ordered. 8 o'clock Monday morning, June 28th. We got the report when we checked in for work. Despite all precautions, another safe job had occurred over the weekend, this time at a liquor store on South Alvarado. The time, the area, and the M.O. were generally the same. Frank and I drove out to the location. The store was located in the middle of the block, directly beneath an apartment hotel. Two of the rooms on the second floor of the hotel were situated above the liquor store. In one of these rooms, a hole had been ripped in the floor, a hole large enough to allow a man to pass through it and gain access to the liquor store directly beneath. After we checked over the room, we put in a call for Ray Pinker and the crime lab crew. Then we went downstairs to interview the manager of the hotel, the Clyde Winters. Well, I, uh, I rented that room Friday night, a couple of young fellows. They checked in a few minutes before 7. I, uh, I figure I'm a pretty good judge of faces. It sure didn't look like thieves to me. How'd they register, Mr. Winters? Well, one signed his name was Gordon. The other one was uh, Richardson, I think. Uh, the register's right outside on the desk. You can check it if you like. Yes, sir, we'd like to do that. When these two men, Gordon and Richardson, checked in here, did they have any baggage with them? Would you know that? Oh, yes, yes, they had baggage. They they took most of it with them, though. They left a few old clothes behind. They must have left for the back way oh, sometime late Sunday night, I figure. Imagine tearing up the floor of that room, the lousy bums. I sure like to get my hands on them. Did they have a car, do you know? Yeah, they had a car. I got the license number, too. You think you'd recognize the two men if you saw them again? Oh, I'd peg them in a minute. You sure of that, are you? Also, I, I'd know him in a minute, especially the young fellow Richard. He could have been more than 27, 28 years old. Yeah. Hair was gray, almost completely gray. Monday, June 28th, 8.55 a.m. The crime lab crew arrived at the scene of the latest safe burglary, the liquor store on South Alvarado, and began their investigation. The store was gone over thoroughly, as well as the hotel room directly above it, through which the burglars had gained access by ripping a hole in the floor. In the store itself, a few feet from the safe, the men from the crime lab found what appeared to be a broken button, probably off a coat. They also found a crumpled envelope on the floor with the name F. Gordon on it, written in pencil. Along with the half a dozen pieces of clothing found in the hotel room, the items were taken back to the crime lab for further examination. 9.10 a.m. After we finished interviewing the hotel manager, Clyde Winters... Frank Smith and I returned to the office with a license number and description of the suspect's car, as well as exemplars of their handwriting, which we'd obtained from the hotel register. We gave our DMV all the information on the car, and they began an immediate check. The vehicle was registered in the name of Ralph McKinley at a Bronson Avenue address. The legal owner was a local bank. We checked the Bronson Avenue place, but they told us there that the man known as McKinley had moved out seven months before. They had no information on his whereabouts. 10.20 a.m. We talked to the people at the bank which held the pink slip on the car. They told us that the last two monthly payments on the car had been mailed in from a Clifford Street address. Frank and I drove out to the location, a one-story duplex apartment building near the intersection of Clifford and Beverly Boulevard. Nice units, aren't they? Run up all over town. They seem to be, don't they? I'll get it. Yeah? Your name, Ralph McKinley? Yeah, that's right. What Police officers, you want to get your coat, McKinley? Like talk to you downtown. What for? What's it all about? Anybody else living here with you? Oh, just myself. Look, you mind telling me what this is all about? Got a few questions we'd like to ask. You won't take long. I can't go with you now. I got a business appointment half an hour. I've been out of town the last couple of months. I'm, I'm due back on the job today. That's so? Yeah, I just can't spare the time. Appointments all day long. I got a whole flock of business I have to clear up. Well, that makes us even. Come on, let's go. 
there wasn't much doubt about McKinley. He fitted the suspect's description almost perfectly. Tall, slight build, approximately 29 years of age, prematurely gray hair. We went over the apartment, but there was no sign of anyone else on the premises. No sign of any of the loot taken in the burglaries. We checked the adjoining garage, but it was empty. The suspect refused to admit that he even owned a car. Frank got on the phone, called the office, and arranged for an immediate stakeout on the apartment. When the men arrived, we drove McKinley back to the city hall and took him to the interrogation room. He was arrogant and uncooperative. We talked to him for a full hour, but he'd admit nothing. Frank left and went down the street to the crime lab to check with Ray Painter on his findings. I continued questioning McKinley. I don't care what the old man says. I don't know what you're talking about. He described you perfectly. He says you were in his fix-it shop a little over a week ago. You told him you were an inventor. You ordered this gadget from him here. I don't get it. What's that supposed to prove? Well, you admit you went to the old man. You had to make this thing up for you, didn't you? I don't admit anything. Why should I? All we're looking for is a straight story. We're going to get it sooner or later, McKinley. Might as well be now. You're getting nothing from me. I don't have to tell you a thing. How about the hotel over on South Alvarado? You stayed there last week? No, of course not. Why should I go to a hotel? I stayed at my place. Thought you said you'd been away. You just got back in town. Sure, that's what I said. I just got back last week. Well, then you didn't stay at that hotel in South Alabama. I told you I didn't. I don't even know the place. But you know Mr. Van Owen, the old fellow at the fix-it shop. I don't know him either. I don't even go near that end of town. What end of town? What are you talking about? Where you said the shop is? I didn't mention where it was. I asked you if you knew Mr. Van Owen, if you ever went to his fix-it shop to order anything. Look, what are you lying for? What's the angle? No angle, McKinley. I told you I'd like to have a straight story, that's all. Well, you got it, mister. You heard everything I have to say. I don't know any old man. I don't know anything about that hotel. How are you talking? Yeah, Don. How'd it go? Uh-huh. I see. Yeah, we'll pick it up. No, we'll pick it up. Right. Thanks a lot. You don't lie very good, McKinley. Now what are you talking about? That was our handwriting man. He just finished checking those exemplars of your handwriting we got from you. He compared them to a signature in the register at the hotel in South Alvarado. I already told you. I don't know the police. Young fellow by the name of Richardson checked in there Friday night about 7 o'clock. He signed the register. The signature's in your handwriting, McKinley. Yeah, sure. That's right. I don't know the place. I've never been there. Now, look, you're going to have to do better than that, fellow. The hotel manager's on his way down here now to identify you. So's Mr. Van Owen from that fix-it shop. Maybe you better piece together a new story, huh? You got my story, cop. I was out of town. You can't prove I wasn't. All right, McKinley. Any way you want it. Joe? Hi. How'd it go? Pretty good. Ray Pinker finished checking his stuff at the crime lab. Here's a report on it. Thank you. Just about sews it up, no doubt about it. Yeah, you're right. All right, what is it this time? More of your phony charges? I want out of here. Can't be done, McKinley. Report on the clothes found in that hotel room. They're not my clothes. I wasn't even in the place. I'd say you were. Cleaning tags on a pair of trousers, one of the coats. Traced them through the dry cleaners to you. That's a lie. I told you I wasn't in the place. Mind you something else here, fella. They ran tests on all the clothes they found in your room. They found particles of fire clay from the safe that you broke into down below in the liquor store, your coat, your trousers. They were covered with the stuff. Save your breath, will you? And when you ripped up the floor of that hotel room, you picked up something else on the clothes. Particles of floor varnish. Small bits of wood. They all tie in. You through? No, not quite. A piece of broken coat button we picked up a couple of feet from the safe. They matched it up with one of the buttons on your coat, a broken one. The pieces fit perfectly. Kenley, how about it? You got my story. No, you got a lot to explain. I'll take my chances. What's the pitch, McKinley? You know you got to come up with a story. It might as well be now. There's no story to it. I was out of town. I told you that. Why don't you get off it, mister? It's not going to take much to make a liar out of you. You know that, don't you? Oh, look, why don't you get off my back, the two of you? I told you everything I'm going to tell you. Sit down, McKinley. I'm getting out of Sit here. Sit down. All right. Go ahead. I can wait it out as long as you can. I doubt that. I'll get it. All right. Smith speaking. How's it? Oh, yeah, Jim. What is it? You're right. When? Mm-hmm. Fine. Yeah, thanks. 
Piece of news for you, McKinley. Yeah? Your partner came back to your place a few minutes ago. Our men picked him up. They're bringing him in now. That is news to me. I don't have any partner. I'm in business for myself. That's what your partner figures. Tell me he claims you've got all the money. He thinks you were trying to run out on him. Oh, what money? Look, I showed you my wallet. You know how much I got. Now, we're going to ask you just once more. You got it. There's nothing else to say. All right, Frank. Yeah, let's book him in. According to Rogers, his partner's willing to talk. I'll get the story from him. All right, McKinley, let's go. What do you mean, go where? Main jail. We're booking you in. Come on, let's go. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah. Come on. What did he say anyway, this guy you say they picked up? Well, your partner? Well, we told you what he said. Why? What's the matter? Nothing. I just asked. Better order up a stenographer, huh, Joe? They were ready to take the statement when they bring the guy in. Yeah, it's a good idea. Sergeant? Yeah. Let's go back, I'll tell you. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On September 19th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 91, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. Ralph Arthur McKinley and his accomplice, John Warren Hatfield, were tried and convicted on six counts of second-degree burglary. They received sentences as prescribed by law. Second-degree burglary is punishable by imprisonment in the county jail for not more than one year, or by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for not less than one, nor more than 15 years. have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the Office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Harry Bartell, Stacey Harris, Jack Crucian. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gipney speaking. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. There's more adventurous entertainment with Nightbeat next on NBC. From May the 1st, 1952, that was Dragnet in the big safe. And I really don't have a lot of time to comment on these shows tonight because we're doing four shows. But I did mention, or I did want to mention in there that uh, Joe wanted to go get a sandwich at Felipe's, which is an institution in downtown Los Angeles. It's the home of the original French dip sandwich. And they're still there. We, we just, we were going to go to them uh, last time we were in uh, California just a month ago, but just couldn't get up there. But boy, if you ever want a great French dip sandwich, go to Felipe's. That's spelled with a P-H, Felipe's right across from Union Station in downtown L.A. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. 
Okay, on the Comedy Corner this week, we're going to go visit Springfield and the Anderson family. You know, the ones on Father Knows Best. This one was originally broadcast on NBC on the 1st of October in 1953. It features the whole family, and it's a good example of uh, a typical American family, and probably any family in the world, as they sit down to dinner together, uh, everybody has their own agenda. And I like it for that reason, this episode. It features uh, Betty, although like I said, each of, the, each of the individual family members are featured in this one. But the title is uh, on Betty tonight. And the title of this one is A Date Mix-Up. Now, Father Knows Best premiered on radio before it went to television. It was probably more popular on television. And to be honest, I think the television show was better. And I'll tell you why at the end of the show. So here we go to October 1st, 1953, a date mix-up on Father Knows Best. Mother, are Post 40% Bran Flakes really the best-tasting cereal of them all? Well, your father says so, and father knows best. Yes, it's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by Instant Sanka, the delicious coffee that lets you sleep and post 40% brand flakes. Mother, next time you're choosing a cereal, remember new post 40% brand flakes give your family all the important keep regular benefits of brand in a cereal with a delicious new magic oven flavor. Insist on post brand flakes, the cereal preferred and eaten by far more people than any other brand flakes. There are certain things that parents are required to do for their children. There are many things they want to do for them, but there are a few things they should never do for them. Now, there's no published list of these things, and so about the only way a parent can find out what they are is to stumble into them by accident. Jim Anderson stumbled into one the other day. Little did daughter Betty realize what was in store for her as she helped set the table for dinner that evening. Like this. And then Ralph said to me, Betty, he said... I'd rather have you in old blue jeans than Marilyn Monroe in a mink coat. Wasn't that sweet, Mother? You're spilling the carrots, Betty. Huh? Oh. And don't set that hot plate on the table without something under it. Ralph is really very sweet. When you come right down to it, Mother, he is sweet. Mm-hmm. I've been misjudging him a lot, lady. But he was really very, very sincere when he told me he'd rather have me in blue jeans than... I wonder why he keeps mentioning Marilyn Monroe all the time. <laughs> Betty, please finish setting the table. Your father will be home any minute. He must have a blonde complex. That's all he can think about. Dinner ready, Mom? Almost. I'm hungry. Well, wash up and comb your hair. Oh, no use washing now. It's my turn to do dishes tonight. I'll get my hands soaked up good then. That doesn't make any difference. Do them now. Too much water is hard on them. Breaks down the tissues. <laughs> I don't think you're in any danger. Hurry now. Mommy! Make some red and flabby. Mommy! Yes, Kathy? Mommy, can I make some taffy? Not now. Dinner's ready. I won't make much. Please, can I? There I... isn't time now. 
Mother, shall I put the roast on the table? I guess so. Your father's evidently going to be late. Betty, will you help me pull taffy tonight? No, I'm going to the library with Ralph. Bud, well... No! Mommy, make him help me pull taffy. Don't bother him now. He's washing his hands. I gotta write a theme tonight. Mommy. Kathy, just let it go for now. Don't keep needling me about it. Yeah, I gotta write a theme tonight. Mom, have I ever been embarrassed? Embarrassed? Yeah, uh, that's what I gotta write about. My most embarrassing moment. Oh, We had our choice, either that or the most vivid character I ever met. I see. I took the embarrassing one because I didn't know what vivid meant. (laughs) Now, that's a fine reason. Margaret, I'm home. Oh, good. There's your father. Let's get to eating. I'm starved. Hello, Daddy. Hello, kitten. Will you help me pull taffy? Uh, We'll see. How are you, honey? Hello, dear. Hi, Dad. Hi. Say, this looks good. I'm hungry, too. Will you, Daddy? Will I what? Pull taffy. Kathy, don't bother your father now. He wants to eat his dinner. I'm sorry I'm a little late, Margaret, but Brownell's in town. Who? Brownell, vice president. Oh, oh, sure. Sure a nice fellow. Real pleasure to have him around. Not like old Cragson used to be. Well, that's nice. Carrots? Thanks. I uh, thought we might take him out to dinner some night. He'll be here for a couple of days. I think that'd be a good idea. Oh, by the way, Betty, I uh, fixed up a little date for you tonight. You, You did what, Father? Fixed you up a date. I'd like some of that jelly, bud. Sure. Father, look at me. What do you mean you fixed me up a little date? Just that. Brownell's son is with him, and he doesn't know anybody in town, so I arranged for him to come over and pick you up tonight. Might go to a show or a dance. Oh, so you arranged it. This is a wonderful roast, Margaret. What did you do to it? Just cooked it. (laughs) Father. Yes? Stop evading the issue and look at me. Evading the issue? What issue? You know what I'm talking about, this date. Well, I've told you everything I know about it. He'll be here around eight. That's fine. That's just fine. I thought you'd like it. (laughs) Bud, will you please pass the rolls? Sure. Father, how can you... you, How can you be such an utter square? Square? I suppose you think you can line up dates for me like like you'd rent out a floor-waxing machine. Betty, why are you so upset? Have I done something wrong? Wrong? Uh, Jim. Dad, have I ever been embarrassed? (laughs) Bud, not now. Well, I'd like to know what all the fuss is about. Father, we are not living in the feudal age anymore. I didn't say we were. You act like it. Girls are not put on the auction block and sold like livestock nowadays, Father. For goodness sake, Betty, all I did was... All you did was arrange a little date for me on the very night I always go to the library with Ralph. Well, it's not going to hurt you to miss going to the library one night. It's not the library, it's Ralph. Well, you're not engaged to Ralph. Besides, I'm not asking you to marry the Brownell boy. Just a courtesy toward a... What does he look like? Well, he's a... His uh, name is Leonard. I didn't ask that. What does he look like? Well, he's, uh... He's, uh... Well, to tell the truth, I've never seen him. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's just great. But I'm sure he's a fine-looking chap. His father's fairly nice-looking. Did you get me a date with his father, too? (laughs) Betty, please. Your father was just trying to do something nice. Hmm. Gosh, you'd think I'd suggested blowing up the city hall or something. Dad. Yeah? Have I ever been embarrassed? <laughs> you? 
Embarrassed? Never. How do you like that? I get nothing but bad breaks. <laughs> Father. Now I'll probably flunk English this semester. Father. Hey, that'd be embarrassing if I flunked. <laughs> Father. No, I'll be too late to write about it then. But will you keep quiet for half a second? Look, Tallulah, I got problems too. Talk about problems. Who's going to help me with my taffy? I had no idea things were so bad. <laughs> Father, what color hair does he have? Who? Leonard. I don't know, Betty. I told you I've never seen him. What I want to know is why his father is so anxious to get dates for him. Must be a real dud. His father had nothing to do with it. It was my idea. How tall is he? Betty, I don't know. Probably a good foot and a half shorter than I am. I can just see myself galloping around the dance floor with this little squirt. Betty, he's no little squirt. How do you know you've never seen him? Look, Betty, I'm sorry this happened. I'll call up Brownell and tell him the whole thing is off. Does he have a car? Well, he must have. He's going to call for you. Probably on a motorcycle. What's wrong with a motorcycle? Not a thing in the world. It's just dandy. I must call up all my friends and tell them to watch for me and Shorty to drive down Main Street on it. All right, all right. I just hope he remembers to take his goggles off while we're dancing. What kind of a motorcycle has he got, Dan? <laughs> I don't know. Jim, where are you going? I'll be back. But your dinner will... right there. I'll be back. Betty... I'm afraid you were a little harsh on your father. Well, what did you expect me to do? If I let him get away with this, there's no telling what it'll lead to. <laughs> He's not trying to get away with anything. I understand perfectly how you feel, Betty. And I don't blame you. But you're making a mountain out of a molehill. But, Mother... We got a molehill in the backyard. I'm not an article of merchandise. Did you see it? That can be bought or traded About or... About a foot from the catalpa tree. Bud, will you hush up? Holy cow... I can't hear myself think around here. A fella tries to join in the conversation and he gets his head knocked off. Mommy, could you make two-toned? Two-toned what? Taffy. Well, when you get through pulling it and dropping it on the floor a few times, it generally is two-toned. <laughs> anyway, Mother, if Father thinks... Betty, your father was merely trying to do something nice, just a friendly gesture toward a business associate. Some friendly gesture. It's just breaking me and Ralph up, that's all. No, it isn't. You can surely explain to Ralph that it was your father's idea, not yours. Oh, sure. Nothing to it. Well, that's that. Do you want me to heat up your dinner, Jim? No, this is fine. Uh-oh, that's probably him calling. Ask him what kind of motorcycle it is. I'm not going to talk to him. Well, it's not him, so stop worrying. I'll go answer it. Leonard is probably going to suggest taking me out to the motorcycle races. Gee, I wish I could go along. You can have him all to your own sweet self for all I care. Betty, if you'll stop moaning for half a minute, I've got some news for you. Wait a minute, I can't go after all. I've got to stay home and figure out when I was embarrassed. <laughs> it's for you, Betty. Is it Leonard? Nope. Thank heaven. It's some girl. Oh, I hope I never go through another evening like this again. I feel as though I committed treason or something. Well, I admit she's carrying on rather elaborately, but you must remember these are very important things to a young girl. They're very sensitive about them. Uh, evidently. Well, it's all over now, anyway. 
What do you mean it's all over? I called Brownell just now. Called the date off. You did? I tell you, it was pretty embarrassing, too. Now, why couldn't that have been me? <laughs> Dad, you get all the breaks. <laughs> Don't I, though? Dad, if I walked down to the drugstore in long underwear, would I be embarrassed? I doubt it. I don't think it would make much of a theme anyway Oh, that Ralph, that Ralph, that deceitful Oh, dear, what's wrong now? You know who that was calling? Florence Pembroke So? Ralph told her to call me And tell me that he couldn't take me to the library tonight Because he and she are working together on the float committee for homecoming day Well, that's too bad, honey What does he see in that Florence Pembroke? Betty, he doesn't see anything in her. He's merely on a committee with her. Oh, sure. Probably arranged it himself. But I got even with that little pipsqueak. I told her to tell Mr. Ralph about my date with Leonard. (laughs) With Leonard? I told her to tell him where we were going, too, so that he can see for himself. Well, just a minute, Betty. You don't have a date with Leonard. I what? I called Brownell and canceled it. Oh, Father, how could you do a thing like that? Oh, me. I didn't tell you to cancel it, did I? No, not in so many words. But the way you were carrying on... Oh, Father, Father, call him up again. What? Tell him to tell Leonard to make it 8.15 instead of 8. I need more time to get dressed. I want to look real glamorous. Now, listen here, Betty. I'm not going to do this. I called him once and... Father, do you want to make a liar out of your own daughter? Well, no, certainly not, Well, then call him. I told Florence I was going out with a handsome man from out of town in a big, beautiful convertible. What happened to his motorcycle? (laughs) Call him, Father. You've got to. Well, all right. But you've got to stick to this. Don't worry. It's not going to be easy, I'll tell you that. Mother, what do you think I ought to wear? Can I wear those glittery pumps of yours? You better wear flat heels as long as he's shorter than you. He is not. Are you sure this is the same kid that's got the motorcycle? Which one is Leonard? Oh, children, stop asking so many questions. This thing is confusing enough as it is. Mother, should I wear my chartreuse dress, the -the off-the-shoulder one? Yes, that'd be nice. I look awful in it. Well, it's all set again, but we were just lucky. Two minutes later, and we'd have missed them. They were just going out to a movie. Uh Uh-oh, I bet that's old Ralph. Hmm, I knew he'd be calling up. What do you want me to tell him? I want to tell him myself. Oh, this is the day I've been waiting for. (laughs) I can tell you one thing. This is the last time I ever muscle in on Cupid's territory. I sure felt silly calling Brownell again, making up a lot of nonsense about misunderstandings and all. I don't think he much believed anything I was saying. You should have invited him over to spend the evening here. Well, I thought of it, but somehow I felt that the less we see of each other right now, the better. Dad, uh, did Mr. Brownell say what Leonard had done with his motorcycle? <laughs> Look, son, I've had a hard day and... Father. Yes? Father, could you do me one little teeny-weeny tiny little favor? Well, that all depends. What is it? Um... Would you call Mr. Brownell and tell him I can't go? What? Now, don't explode, Father. Ralph said Florence got the message all mixed up. He was just going to be a little late as all. Now, listen here, Betty. Oh, he was so upset about me having another date. He was just sick over it. So what could I do, Father? Betty... He canceled the whole float meeting, and he's going to take me to the dance himself. 
He's so sweet. Oh, I give up. So will you call, Father? No. But, Father, I can't have two dates. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh! <laughs> now, Betty. Wait, Betty. Oh, me. Um, Jim, you started this. Uh, maybe you ought to figure it out to the finish. Yeah, I suppose so. But how? Dad. Yes, bud? Try to think of something embarrassing, will you? at this point in her life, Betty is faced with the prospect of having two dates for the evening, Ralph and the son of Jim's vice president. However, the problem of solving this situation has been tossed squarely in Jim's lap. He's pretty busy right now pacing the floor of the den where young Bud is laboring over his school theme. Like this. Hey, Dad, uh, listen to this now. See how it sounds. Yeah, that sounds fine. I haven't read it yet. Oh. My most embarrassing... But I'm trying to concentrate on a little problem right now. Well, this will just take a second. My most embarrassing moment by Bud Anderson. Pretty good so far, huh? Very good. One day, when I was a young boy of a few years ago... Does that sound right? Fine. Uh, one day, when I was a young boy of a few years ago, I went way out to the country to visit my grandfather, and he told me to... Told you to what? Well, I thought maybe you could just suggest something to go in there, as long as I got it started. That's the hard part, getting started. Look, Bud, you'll have to work that out for yourself tonight. I've got my hands pretty full with Betty's problem. Gosh, I'd think she'd be happy to have two dates. Make her look real popular. Well, it doesn't work out very well, somehow or other. Too bad Betty isn't twins. Hey, wait a minute. I believe that's it. Sure, we'll get another girl. What for? Another girl to go along, make it a foursome. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't think of this before. Janie Liggett's the girl. I'll call her right now. Do you know the Liggett's number? Oh, it's scribbled down there someplace. Must be. Wait, I think this is it. Yes, Janie. Now let's get me straightened out. Surely something embarrassing ought to happen when a boy goes to visit his grandfather. Don't bother me now, bud. Would it help any if I went to visit my uncle? <laughs> Hello? I'd like to speak to Jenny Liggett, please. Oh, <laughs> I didn't recognize your voice, Jenny. Uh, this is Betty's father. I'm fine. Listen, Janie, a little situation has come up here. Uh, Betty has an extra boyfriend for the evening, and we thought maybe you might join her and make it a foursome. Well, <laughs> I admit it's awfully late to be calling, but this whole thing came up rather unexpectedly. Uh, Ralph and an out-of-town boy. I, I guess about 8 o'clock. So why don't you come over as soon as you're ready, and you can start from here. Well, fine, Janie, and thanks very much. Goodbye. Well, that was simple. Hey, Dad, uh, listen. One day, when I was a young boy of a few years ago, I went way out to the country to visit my grandfather, and he told me to go back home. That'd be embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll be right back. One day, when I was a young boy over at my uncle's... Betty! Betty! She's up here, dear. I've got some good news. Daddy, you ready to help me pull Taffy now? Uh, later, kitten. Well, wait, Daddy. 
I want you to taste it. Well, I'll be down in a minute. Betty, are you in your room? Naturally. Oh, well, uh, you'll be glad to know that I've got everything straightened out for you. What did you do? Call Mr. Brownell? No, I didn't. You didn't call Ralph, did you? No, Princess, I did not. Well, what did you do? Yes, just what did you do, dear? I'm a little curious myself. It was very simple. I called Janie Liggett, and she's going to make it a foursome. You... you did what? I just told you I called Janie Liggett. Oh, Father, no. Well, what's wrong with that? Listen, Father... Go ahead. Blindfold me and line me up in front of the firing squad. Just who is going to be Janie's date? Well, work that out any way you like. Let her go with Leonard. Oh, I see. And let her have all the fun. (laughs) Betty, it was merely a suggestion. What if he turns out to be good-looking and a dreamy dancer and a lot of fun? Betty, I merely... Janie always thinks she can get all the new boys in town. All right, then. You go with Leonard and let Janie go with Ralph. With Ralph? Yes. I wouldn't trust her with Ralph if I had them chained in a fishbowl. Oh, me, I give up. Do you want me to tell you something about that Janie Liggett? You, Betty, you upstairs. Is that you, Janie, honey? Shall I come up? Yes, darling. Father, I could strangle you for this. Right now, I'd welcome it. It'll never work out. Just simply will not work out. Well, I don't know what else to do. Gee, Betty, is that my date? Oh, hello, Mrs. Anderson. Hello, Janie. Mr. Anderson. Hi. Uh, Betty, is that my date downstairs? Downstairs? I don't know. Who's down there? I don't know. I got a glimpse of some fellow sitting in the living room talking to Kathy. She was asking him where his motorcycle was. (laughs) That must be Leonard. He and Kathy are pulling Taffy. Hope that's not his idea of a good time. Uh, Jim, I think you'd better go down there and rescue the poor boy. Yeah, okay. Hey, Dad, I believe I've got the idea for my theme now. Uh, listen to this. Well, uh, read it to your mother. I've got a little job to attend to right now. Well, uh, listen, Mom. Oh, hello, Janie. My most embarrassing moment by Bud Anderson. And then I just leave the rest of it blank. Leave it blank? Yeah. And then when the teacher asked me to get up and read my theme, boy, will I be embarrassed. But the idea is to write a theme, not get embarrassed. Yeah, but, Mom, you see, Come on, come on downstairs, and I'll help you work on it. I got one other idea about visiting my grandfather, but it's not so hard. Tell me, Janie, um, what does he look like? The boy downstairs? Yes. Well, I didn't really get a good look at him. Well, you didn't, huh? No. But I believe he has dark, wavy hair and blue eyes. And he's wearing a brown gabardine suit with a tan pinstripe shirt and dark green tie with socks to match. Brown scotch green shoes, and he's got a fraternity pin on. What fraternity? I told you. I didn't get a good look at him. (laughs) Oh, what'd you say his name was? Leonard. Dark, wavy hair, did you say? Uh Uh-huh. He's dreamy. I hope he's a good dancer, as long as I'm going to have to dance with him all evening. Uh, Janie, you know, he's the son of the vice president of Father's Insurance Company. Oh, really? And, um, this date is sort of a business gesture for Father. So what am I supposed to do, talk about insurance all evening? No, um, what I mean is, well, Father would sort of like me to go with Leonard. It's Father's idea, you understand. Oh. Oh, so then do I get Ralph? Well, not exactly. Well, just what cozy little arrangement have you got worked out? 
Well, you see, Janie... Betty, could we speak to you a minute? Uh, just a second, Father. I'm coming. Oh, gee, Betty, I've forgotten my lipstick. Have you got one I can borrow? Look on the vanity there. Okay. Yes, Father, what is it? You and Mother look like you've just seen a ghost. Uh, go on, Jim. Tell her. Well, uh, something has just come up, and... Uh... Well, what is it? Well, Betty, uh, both the boys are here now, and it seems that Ralph got to worrying a little bit about the boy you were supposed to have a date with. Worrying? Yes, so he, uh, he brought Florence Pembroke along as a date for him. <laughs> brought Florence along? Now, just keep calm, Betty. Remember, this wasn't my idea, and I'm sure there's some way we can work it out. Why, that's wonderful, Father. What? Well, that solves everything, Father. Betty, are you sure you heard what I said? Why, certainly. Now both Florence and Janie can go with Ralph, but that way neither one of them will really have him, and I can go with Leonard. Hurry up, Janie! I'm coming! Good night, Father. Good night, Mother. Bye, Mrs. Anderson, Mr. Anderson. Well. Well. Margaret, if I live to be a thousand years old, there's one thing I'll never understand, and that's girls. <laughs> Well, sometime when you have a moment, dear, come into the den and we'll have a little talk. The gay fivesome is now on its way to the dance, and ex-matchmaker Jim is still pondering the complexities of the tender feminine mind. As he wearily pulls taffy with Kathy and listens to the workings of the young male mind, like this. Now I could start it out like this, Dan. Uh-huh. Once upon a time ago, when I was a boy, and I went out swimming, and some other boys stole my pants. But that's not going to work. But I've got an idea. Change the title to the most embarrassing moment of a friend of mine, and started out like this. Shoot, I'm ready. Once upon a time, I knew a man who had a daughter. Now, this man had the strange idea that he could arrange a date for his daughter. So one day, this misguided man... Join us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson. Until then, good night and good luck from the makers of Post 40% Bran Flakes, the cereal preferred and eaten by far more people than any other Bran Flakes, and Instant Sanka, the delicious coffee that lets you sleep. In our cast were Gene Vanderpile as Margaret, Rhoda Williams, Ted Donaldson, Helen Strom, and Mary Lee Robb. Father Knows Best, based on characters created by Ed James, was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Paul West and Roswell Rogers. This is Bill Foreman speaking. Twenty-eight magic programs start the fourth on NBC. That was Father Knows Best, as originally heard on NBC back on the 1st of October in 1953. The name of that episode was A Date Mix-Up. Funny thing about that one is one minute Betty was going to be going to the library with her boyfriend, and then suddenly they're going to a dance on a school night. I don't know. Hey, uh, let me ask you something just real quick. 
when did they get rid of 40% bran flakes and just make them bran flakes? And why? Now they're just bran flakes. Why, why were they 40%? If anybody knows, I tried to look it up online. I can't get an answer to that. I, I spent a good 10 minutes trying to find an answer to that. Couldn't find it. If you know, maybe you could send me a note. Pretty good story, don't you think? I think it was. One thing I was always aware of on Father Knows Best is that they were reading a script. I I don't know how else to put it. I don't want to say the acting was bad, because I don't think that was true. But there was something about it that I was just so aware that they were reading. And a lot of the timing could have been very, very good if you weren't aware of that. I mean, the conversations were set up where they popped, you know, one person would comment on something and somebody else would come right back. Somebody would change the subject in the background and it was snappy. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, kind of a snappy dialogue, but it just never was pulled off very well on the radio, I don't think. When they went to the television show, Robert Young always wanted a warm family show and it wasn't just for laughs. He wanted uh, sensitive scripts scripts that would make you feel good and warm and family-oriented, you know, that sort of thing. And as a result, because he wanted to make those changes, he felt it was best to just have a whole new cast. So that's where you got Jane Wyatt and Eleanor Donahue and uh, Billy Gray and uh, Lauren Chapin. And I still remember those characters. I enjoy listening to some of the episodes on radio, and some of them I'm just not real hot on. But again... (laughs) I've I've done a little investing in the last week or so, trying to gear up for doing a daily presentation of one show a day. So I've been spending a little money to increase the number of uh, good sound quality shows in my files. And as a result, I came across a pretty good collection of Father Knows Best. So we will be featuring more of these in the weeks ahead. <laughs> As you can tell from the music, it is time for Gunsmoke, everybody. Time to go back to Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s. Walk up Front Street shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Protecting the good citizens, including Doc and Kitty and Chester and everybody else on Gunsmoke. 
might recall last time we got together, this was two weeks ago on our live show, that we did a episode of Gunsmoke entitled The Choice, and we were introduced to Andy Hill. And Andy was a young man who had got involved with the wrong partner, and they had uh, committed some crimes, but the partner had committed murder, and Andy wanted no part of it. And so he ran away, basically, and uh, found his way to Dodge City, where he tried to start life as an honest citizen. And he took on a job and started showing himself to be a very responsible individual. But when his partner came to town looking for him, that caused some problems. The way it ended up was the partner was killed, but Andy was now faced with the fact that Matt was going to have to contact the authorities in the Oklahoma Territory where the crimes had taken place. But Matt felt confident that he could let them know that Andy, for a long time now, had been a good model citizen. That's the way that one ended. They were waiting for word from the, from the law in the Oklahoma Territory. That's where this story begins tonight, because this is literally a two-part story. And last week it was called The Choice. This week it's called The Second Choice. So here you have the continuing saga of Andy Hill on Gunsmoke from November the 6th, 1955. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Yeah. Well, ain't it? What? Oh, oh, yeah, sure, Chester. Well, doggone it, the wind ain't blowing, it ain't raining, nor hailing, nor snowing, nor freezing, nor nothing, and if that don't make for a fine day up here, then I'm going back to Texas where it does. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chester. I, I, uh, I was thinking about Andy Hill. Mm, Andy. Uh, we'll find out about him in a couple minutes. Uh, 
Look, uh, Chester, why don't you go over and see if the telegrams come yet, huh? I'll be waiting over there for you. Over where? Oh. <laughs> Miss Kitty. <laughs> I'll be back directly. <laughs> Hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. Fine day, isn't it? Yeah. You got something on your mind? Chester's gone over to see if that sheriff down in Oklahoma Territory sent me an answer yet. Oh, about Andy Hill? Yeah. Well, he's only wanted for robbery, Matt. I should think after you're telling him how he brought in a man wanted for murder, they'd be willing to go easy on him. Well, I hope so, Kitty. And especially since he's settled down here and making a good name for himself. If they'll take my word for it. Well, the sheriff will have to take your word for it. <laughs> He's probably never even heard of me. Hello, Miss Kitty. Marshal. Hello, Andy. Andy. Heard anything from Oklahoma, Marshal? Uh, Chester's over at the telegraph office right now. Oh. Well, uh, I hope it's good news. Why don't you wait and find out, Andy? I'll find out soon enough, Miss Kitty. Right now, I got to shoe a couple of horses for Jim Buck. I promised I'd have it done by noon. Jim was telling me yesterday you're the best man he ever hired. Oh, anybody can ride shotgun, Miss Kitty. All you do is sit there and keep your eyes open. No, it's more than that. He trusts you. It makes me feel good to hear that, Miss Kitty. Goodbye. Bye. You know where to find me, Marshal. Yeah, sure, Andy. If there were more men like him around Dodge, it might not be such a bad place to live. <laughs> then I'd be out of a job, Kitty. You could find something else to do. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Morning, Miss Kitty. Well, hello, Chester. Uh, here's the telegraph, Mr. Dillon. What's it say, Chester? Well, it's not... You better read it. Uh-huh. I'm sending Deputy Jack Harder it. Turn Andy Hill for trial. Signed, Bob Catlin, sheriff. Well, he puts it real short, doesn't he? Yeah. He must have some reason for not giving Andy no chance. I will find out when this jack hog gets here, Chester. You gonna put Andy in jail, Matt? No. I'm not even gonna tell him about this until I've talked to Hall. Andy's nice and gentle now, but he'll fight like a tiger anybody tries to arrest him. And he's some handy with a gun, too. Maybe he won't have to fight, Chester. Maybe I'll just send Jack Haw back home empty-handed. What if he's got a legal warrant for Andy? Well, there's going to be trouble, Kitty. One way or the other. Chester, will you please stop dusting my desk? Well, but look at the... Marshal Dillon? Yeah, come in. My name's Hall, Marshal, Jack Hall. Uh, how are you? Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot, Hall. Huh? How do you do? We've been expecting you. Sheriff Catlin said he was going to send a telegram. Yeah, he did. You got Andy Hill locked up here? No, I haven't. No? I haven't seen a warrant for his arrest yet. Oh, I forgot. Here it is, Marshal. Signed by Sheriff Catlin himself. Uh-huh. That's a mighty fancy signature he's got. 
Well, it looks legal. Uh, hey, wait a minute. What is it, Marshal? This is a warrant for the arrest of Andy Hill for murder. Didn't Sheriff Catlin explain? No, he didn't. And I guess he figured it'd be better if I did. Well, go ahead. Well, the sheriff got your letter about Andy, how he brought in that murderer and how he's become a good citizen up here. And I think he was willing to forget that little robbery charge against him. Why didn't he? A man was killed just before Andy left Oklahoma Territory, Marshal. There was three witnesses to it, but we didn't know that until they decided to talk just the other day. And they say it was Andy who did the killing? That's right. Tried to hold up a saloon and killed the bartender. How come these witnesses waited so long? They was afraid. They thought Andy'd kill them for talking before we could catch him. Well, I guess they got to feeling guilty about it. I see. Marshal, I, I think I know how you feel. You've come to like Andy. Most everybody does until they really get to know him. The boy's a liar to begin with, a real clever one. He can usually talk his way out of anything, just like his brother. His brother? His brother murdered a man, too, Marshal, about a year ago. Oh, I see. They're both liars and they're both killers, Marshal. Don't feel bad about being taken in by Andy. They tell me just about everybody has been one time or another. They tell you? I don't know him myself. I've only been deputy down there for the last couple of months. But I know a lot about Andy. Uh-huh. When do you want to start back, huh? I was thinking of taking the stage tomorrow morning. You stand at the Dodge House? Yes, I am. All right, come by in the morning. I'll have Andy here. Your town, Marshal. I'll do whatever you say. He'll be here in the morning. Unless he tries to shoot me. Hard to believe, ain't it, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. I ain't got no reason to be lying, I guess. No. And after all you've done for Andy, and he's nothing but a common killer. There he is, working over there at the anvil. Uh, Chester, hmm? you wait outside here, huh? I may have trouble with him. All right, sir. What are you doing here, Marshal? Sheriff Catlin sent a deputy to take you back to Oklahoma Territory, Andy. What? They want you for the murder of that bartender. Bartender? What are you talking about? You might as well admit it, Andy. The three witnesses have already talked. Uh, I don't know what this is all about, Marshal, but I didn't kill nobody. They got me mixed up with my brother. I heard about him. This deputy tell you? Yeah. What's his name? Jack Hawd. I never heard of him. He's got a warrant for your arrest, Andy. Signed and legal. There's something wrong about this. I don't like it. There's no reason why you should. Marshal, uh, my brother killed a man down there. Name of Bob Butler. I never knew him. I never even seen him. 
But this butler had a cousin, and I heard he swore he'd kill one of us hills for it, and he wasn't particular which one. That's got nothing to do with this, Sandy. How do I know this Jack Hall ain't really Bob Butler's cousin? He could shoot me easy before we ever got back there. It's no use, Sandy. I had a wire from the sheriff, and Hall's got a warrant signed by him now. You give me your gun. I thought she was my friend. I'm a lawman, Andy. That don't make me kill you. You would, wouldn't you? I don't want to. All right. Take my gun. But you're the same as killing me, Marshal. Good morning, Chester. Andy. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Mr. Dillon, Andy just won't say nothing. Not a word. Well, maybe that shotgun you're holding on him's got something to do with it. Well, I didn't want him to get away just because I let him out of his cell. He won't get away. Morning, Marshal. Chester. Ah, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Hall. Well, this the prisoner? Mm-hmm, that's him. Andy Hill. Heard a lot about you, Andy. Feel like I know you real well. He's not talking much, huh? No. Well, he'll talk at his trial. If there is a trial. What do you mean? Of course there'll be a trial. Will there? Andy thinks maybe you're gonna shoot him on the way back, huh? Why would I want to shoot him? He thinks your name might be Butler. Butler? Well, that's the man Andy's brother killed. He says Butler had a cousin. Uh, this cousin swore he'd get one of the Hill boys for it. Either one. It's true, Marshal. I've heard it myself, but... Well, there's something Andy doesn't know. Butler's cousin was killed in a saloon brawl about a month ago. I was with Sheriff Catlin when he arrested the man who killed him. Well, there you are, Andy. You see, you've got nothing to worry about. You'll get a trial. You'll get a fair trial. Right now, we better get going. Stage leaves in half an hour. You gonna handcuff me? No. Not here, not in Dodge. I don't want to cause you no embarrassment, Andy. I'm going to take you back, but I'm going to make it as easy on you as I can. There, you see, Andy? Oh, ain't he a nice fellow? Let's go. Goodbye, Marshal. Thanks for your help. Goodbye. Goodbye, Chester. Goodbye, Mr. Haw. Uh, goodbye, Andy. Marshal? Yeah, Andy. I made a mistake. Oh? I should have fought it out with you when I had a chance. Mr. Dillon! Oh, good morning, Chester. Uh, morning, Mr. Dillon. You had your breakfast yet? Well, that's where I'm headed right now. Uh, well, if you'll stop in at the Dodge house with me for a minute, I'll go with you. Okay, fine. What, uh, what's going on at the Dodge house? Well, a fellow whose room there borrowed some money off me last night. He said he'd pay it back this morning. Oh, I see. 
It oughtn't to take but a minute, Mr. Dillon. He said he'd have it waiting for me. He's going to leave it with the clerk here. Go ahead. Oh, morning, Marshal. Chester. Good morning, Avery. Avery. Ah, what can I do for you, huh? Uh, did Sam Adams leave some money here for me? Money? Oh, no. No? Well, where's he at? Well, he paid his bill and left about an hour ago, Chester. He left? Where'd he go to? I don't know. He got on his horse and rode out of town. Yeah, but now he, he couldn't. He owed me some money. I don't even know where he's from. Sorry, I can't help you, Chester. Now, well, wait a minute, now. Chester. Don't get excited. Let's take a look at the register here. It ought to say where he's from. Well, they don't always put that down, Marshal. Most of them just sign their names. Well, you know? we'll take a look anyway. Gosh. Yeah, you're right. Most of them do just sign their names. Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, Jack Hall. Jack Hall. What's the matter, Mr. Dillon? Hall's signature, Chester. Well, certainly Mr. Hall stayed here, but uh, he's gone now, Marshal. No, he hasn't. That stage is just pulling out now. Uh, where are you going, Mr. Dillon? Talk to one of your passengers, Jim. Sure, I'll wait. Well, what is it, Marshal? What'd you stop us for? I got something to tell you, Hawk. Get down. Okay. Yeah. You too, Andy. Come on down here. Sure. What do you want him for, Marshal? What's this all about? Here, stay in here, Jim. You can get moving now. No, you wait. Get moving, I said, Jim. Yeah. Now, what do you think you're doing, Marshal? Now, why'd you do that? I said I had something to tell you, huh? You didn't have to send the stage off. You're not going anywhere. What are you talking about? I just saw your signature on the register over at the Dodge House. My signature? It's a mighty fancy one, huh? Just like Sheriff Catlin's on that warrant you showed me. What are you driving at, Marshal? Sheriff Catlin didn't sign that warrant. You did. You're smart, Marshal. Let's see if you're as fast with your gun as you are with your head. Drop, Andy! You hit, Andy? I'm all right, Marshal. You missed me. Well, he's dead, Andy. He'd have killed me if you hadn't shot him, Marshal. Yeah, he was a real feuding man. Your brother killed his cousin, and he was willing to die right here if he could only take you with him. Yeah. And he is probably a deputy, though. That's how he got hold of my letter to Sheriff Catlin. Sure. Catlin probably never saw your letter. Yeah. Well, Andy... Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to write him again. <laughs> and this time, I don't think you're going to have any trouble. William Conrad. 
You know, a man could lose his life on the frontier and not create much stir. But if he made a new one for himself, well, he had the respect of everyone. So, uh, be with us next week. Until then, good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Vic Perrin, and Joseph Kearns. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join the Arthritis and Rheumatism Foundation in its efforts to solve the mysteries of these painful and crippling diseases. Send your contribution to Arthritis in care of your local postmaster. Be sure and listen to another transcribed story of the Old West on Gunsmoke next week at this same time. So there was the two-part saga of Andy Hill on Gunsmoke. Last week we heard The Choice, this week we heard Second Choice. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. We'll be back next week with our archive show, back in two weeks with an all-new show, and uh, we look forward to seeing you then. I've received a number of nice emails uh, in the last week or two, and I wanted to read a few of them tonight, but I'm just all out of time, so we'll try to get to those next time we get together. This is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad. You met me.